Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as always, I say we have an exciting program, and we do today. We have our regular broadcast partners on the program, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, and Dr. Richard Schmidt will be on the program with us today. Jimmy, we also have Bill Federer. He's a brand new guest to Prophecy Today. He combines history and biblical principles, and it helps us to see and explain what is taking place in the world, especially America today. Yes, uh, he takes a look at the past, America's history, to help America in the future. And we sure do need a lot of help, as we'll find out on the program today. And Rick, this is the second anniversary of the home going of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, and it's his passion that we hope that you hear as we carry on the program. It certainly is, Jimmy, and we remember our father for many things, especially you and I personally. But when you look at his commitment to studying the entire Word of God, but especially a particular emphasis on prophecy, his Bible study, his study of the Word of God has helped us to put together a framework as we look at Bible prophecy. And that legacy continues on, and we'll talk about that today, remembering his home going by talking to Dr. Richard Schmidt and look at the book at the end of the program. Well, let's get started with our regular broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Rick, we've got a lot to cover that involves world politics. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Ken Timmerman with us. He is a frequent guest on the program, an author, an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. There you can sign up for his newsletter, read some of his news stories. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, Rick, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ken, sometimes I uh, jokingly refer to the fact that we play a little game called Where in the World is Ken Timmerman Today? Now, I know you've been in Sweden recently, but where are you now? Uh, well, I'm in the south of France, and one of the reasons we wanted to come back here in mid-August is to celebrate the uh, 79th anniversary of the D-Day landings in the south of France, in the Mediterranean. This is uh, what Churchill called Operation Dragoon, because he said he had to be dragooned into it. He did not want to divert forces from marching into Germany by coming up the south of France. Anyhow, it's a wonderful parade. People bring out their World War II Willys Jeeps. Uh, they have M48 uh, tanks, uh, Sherman tanks parading through the streets. Absolutely amazing to see. And people here, I call this, uh, this is the uh, Trump part of France. Very interesting. Well, for those of you listening to this program and think, man, this guy has an interesting life. He certainly does. In fact, he even wrote a book about it. He's got his memoirs and the rest is history, a very uh, highly entertaining read. So I, I suggest you take a look at it if you're interested. Well, let's get to business here, Ken, as, as we're going. And we'll start off with Russia and Ukraine. We've talked about this crisis quite often. Uh, now it looks like the Biden administration is looking for even more money to put towards the Ukrainian defense. Uh, well, they're asking for another $24 billion for Ukraine. That's in addition to the $130 billion so far appropriated for Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, the president is going to have a hard time getting the Republican Congress to go along with this. This will be the first vote of the Republican Congress, a clean vote on a Ukraine aid bill or Ukraine assistance bill. And uh, Speaker McCarthy has said uh, he is really not very hot on doing this. There are 70 Republicans 
Republicans who are strong supporters of President Trump who have already come out against this. They include members of the Freedom Caucus whose support Kevin McCarthy very much needs to remain the Speaker of the House. So I don't think this is a done deal. Uh, it's, a, it, it, it's part of a $40 billion package with all kinds of other stuff, border security, it's not border security, it's housing for refugees, housing for these people who are storming across the southern border, a disaster relief and all kinds of other things. This one could be dead on arrival. We'll have to see, Rick. As the old saying goes, a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. But I don't think this is representative of the fact that anybody in Congress is pro-Russia or pro-Putin. I think they're just worried about accountability for this money. And that is that concern seems to have been validated this week by stories of corruption in Ukraine. Uh, that's right. The uh, uh, Zelensky has sacked uh, most of his army recruitment chiefs on corruption charges. And uh, one general in particular was said to have taken government money supposed to be spent to recruit young men into the armed forces and bought property in Spain, you know, pr property for his vacation property in Spain. Now, I'm, I'm all for people having vacation property in Spain if they can afford it and use their own resources to buy it. Why not? <laughs> But uh, this particular general was not doing that. He was taking uh, the people's money, their tax money, and putting it into his own pocket. And Zelensky is cracking down on it. There's one piece of good news here, Rick, in this story. Uh, Ukraine used to be at the very bottom of the corrupt, corrupt countries. I think it was Russia was, was next to the bottom and Ukraine was at the bottom. Now they've moved up to something like uh, number 116 out of 180 countries in Transparency International's latest Corruption Perceptions Index. So 116 instead of 179, that's not so bad. That actually is some progress. So I think this is a half good news, half bad news story. Well, we'll move away from that part of the world, and let's move to the Middle East. Let's talk about Iran. If we talk about them just about every week, it's all interrelated, as most geopolitics are. But uh, there, the story coming out this week that the U.S. has negotiated a prisoner release. This is in conjunction with maybe the nuclear deal, and it's got quite a few people concerned. Could you tell us why? Oh, yes. It's got quite a few people very upset. Uh, the United States is essentially releasing seven billion dollars to the Iranians. This is their money. It's been sequestered in South Korea. It's payment for Iranian oil. But nevertheless, it's money that Iran is going to have available for its domestic uh, uses, its domestic needs, so we can free up other uh, money in his budget to buy weapons and support terrorism and to continue its nuclear program. Now, here's the thing. This is basically a ransom payment, Rick. Five Americans get released from prison. They don't even get returned to the United States yet. They're going to be uh, under house arrest for another couple weeks, the Iranians say. And in exchange for that, uh, we give them $6 billion in oil revenue, in addition to another $2 billion that we really agreed to release from Iraq uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is really the worst kind of transactional politics you can imagine, Rick, of paying cash for hostages. It only encourages the Iranians to take more Americans hostages. They're going to do it. They see it pays well. I think it's a bad idea, and the Biden administration shouldn't engage in it. They should do it. Ronald Reagan said, we're not going to pay for hostages, even though in the end he did. But he knew it was a bad thing to do. Well, as we continue to talk about this whole situation, the worldwide situation, this war raging in Europe, 
I want to talk to you about the European Union. They have elections coming up for the European Parliament. It happens every five years, and there'll be elections in 2024. Many are saying that this is the most important elections that they ever have. They're the ones that are going to save the world by resolving this situation. What do you see coming out of these European Parliament elections? Well, I think Europe is slowly drifting to the right. Uh, Europe is becoming uh, less Europe-centric and becoming more nation-state-centric. You now have uh, the new uh, head of the European Parliament, a a female politician from Malta, who's really on the center-right. And she is saying that Europe, quote, shares with the U.S. the same values, dreams, and promise for a better and safer future. This is not the kind of thing that you would have heard other left-wing European parliamentarians saying just six months ago. So she's trying to sort of recenter European politics away from a confrontation with the United States, where they had been, now into more cooperation. But I don't see Europe playing a great role in the Ukraine crisis or in other crises uh, around the world. As I said on this show just a couple of weeks ago, when bad things happen in Europe, the Europeans retreat into their cocoon. Uh, They do not want to confront crises. They want them to go away. They care about their pocketbooks. They care especially about their summer vacations. And they do not want to confront a world crisis. So I do not see Europe stepping up to the plate. I don't see them contributing a lot of money or weaponry to the Ukraine war more than they have done already. And what they have contributed, Rick, let's not forget, was really after being badgered first by President Trump and then by President Biden. So, again, Europe, I think, is more, how should I say, the land of the lotus eaters. They're into their own self-indulgent pleasures. They don't want to be bothered with the real tough things of this world. Well, one final question for you, Ken, and this is late breaking news coming out of Washington. It looks like Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to look into the Hunter Biden and and maybe interactions that Hunter Biden had with the current president of the United States. So many different things going on. We talked a little bit last week about the prosecution or what's going on with these special counsels with former President Trump. Now we throw this wrench into the deal and it's certainly going to make for an interesting election year next year. Just wanted to know, I know there's going to be a lot of time to talk about this in the future, but just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about this special counsel appointed to look into the Biden family. Well, the man he appointed, David Weiss, was the federal prosecutor in Delaware who brought these minimalist charges against Hunter Biden on tax-related issues. I do not have great expectations for the result of uh, this particular probe. I think Merrick Garland was pretty much forced to do this, given the outrageous, outlandish uh, information that has been becoming public over the past couple of weeks, thanks to, uh, you know, James Comer and the U.S. congressional investigation into Hunter Biden's corruption, and it's clearly corruption. So I think this is something that Merrick Garland was forced to do. He didn't want to do it. And uh, my guess is it's going to be a whitewash probe, but you never know. Special counsels have a way of growing a, a life all on their own and separating themselves from the attorney general. So we'll have to wait and see. But again, I do not have great expectations at this point. Well, Ken, we've talked about the Middle East. We've talked about Europe. We've talked about what's going on in U.S. politics. You help us to connect all these dots. We appreciate you taking the time there from your special time in the south of France to educate our listeners. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. 
It's always my pleasure, Rick. God bless. Great job, Ken, as always. And I can't wait to hear what Bill Federer has to say in the second half hour about America's past leading to its future. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States shut down its embassy in Haiti on Tuesday with gunfire close by. Gang violence has Port-au-Prince in a state of anarchy. Gangs also kidnapped an American nurse and her daughter two weeks ago. Thankfully, both were recently released. With news like this, Rosalinda Hardett for Haiti with Love reminds us that Haiti is not all bad. The violence is limited to the South. For Haiti with Love runs a burn clinic in the North where there's no gang violence, but the ripple effects still have impact. They need your support to keep ministering in the name of Christ. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. And persecution can lead to purification in Christian teaching. An Algerian Christian leader, Youssef, who partners with Operation Mobilization, remembers when leaders taught the church was only a building. Then the government started closing Protestant churches. Believers learned they were the church, and God is with them wherever they gather. Pray for Youssef and his wife training Christian leaders in Algeria. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program that we dedicate to Middle East news. We call it our Middle East news update. We have with us author and journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining with us. Pleased to be with you, Rick. David, there's not much going on on the judicial overhaul political front, so I'd like to talk about a few other things today, the first one being a story with prophetic and political implications, and that's the story of Israel bringing over 200 people from Ethiopia to Israel for Aliyah. Yes, Rick, this is due to fighting in the north of Ethiopia that's been going on for several years, uh, basically in the Tigray province. That sort of wound down last November, but in recent weeks, fighting has uh, escalated in the Amhara province right next door, and especially in their second biggest city, Gondar, and that has quite a few Ethiopian Jews uh, living in it. There's a number of Israelis that work down there with them. A new Aliyah wave, a new uh, move of Ethiopian Jews to Israel is being planned. So there's some government officials there and some others, private groups, the Jewish agency. And the fighting got so bad during the week that the Netanyahu government decided to evacuate all of the Israelis and to move the Jews that are waiting to fly to Israel 
to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. So several flights uh, were carried out during the week. And like I said, over 200 people were taken either to Israel or to the Ethiopian capital. There's 160,000 plus Ethiopian Jews in Israel, Rick, as you know, and you mentioned prophecy. I covered the 1984 Operation Moses Aliyah wave where Israel went down and picked up thousands of Ethiopian Jews. And then in 1991, we had the second major operation called Solomon. And of course, uh, that refers, Moses refers to the Jews leaving Egypt to the north of Ethiopia. And Solomon refers to Queen Bathsheba, who came to visit him uh, from that region. And as you say, this is a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 43. It says, I'll say to the north, give them up. Well, we had the major wave of immigration from the collapsed Soviet Union in the 1990s, and I'll say to the South, do not hold them back. Well, of course, the Ethiopian Jews, some had come in even in the 20s and 30s, in the early years before Israel was created, but most were not allowed by the Ethiopian governments to leave their country to move back to Israel, but many wanted to. And so these um, operations took place, and many saw that, and I agreed, has a fulfillment, or at least, you know, the partial fulfillment of some of those prophecies. But the fighting continues there, and Israel's, again, committed to saving its people all around the world when they're in harm and trouble, and so that is going on right now fulfilled Bible prophecy. That's something that we look at on this program. Well, let's move on and we'll talk about a few other stories. Protest taking place, not in Israel, but in Gaza against Hamas. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, Rick, these are the largest anti-Hamas protests in the Gaza Strip since 2019, so in four years. On Sunday, July 30th, thousands of Gaza residents took to the streets in a protest movement organized by an Instagram account, of all things. It has around 160,000 followers in the Gaza Strip. It called for people to come out and protest the fact that they only get eight hours of electricity a day, if that, the fact that unemployment is at 45 percent, many other things about the Hamas regime that these people don't like, the oppression, uh, the fact that Hamas leaders live in luxury, whereas most Gaza residents live in poverty. And it was carried out under the slogan, we want to live, which was also the slogan in 2019 when there were protests. And there have been earlier ones as well. But the uh, Abbas uh, regime, the Palestinian Authority, was quickly accused of being behind these uh, protests. They denied it. They said we're not uh, involved. But on July 30th, interestingly enough, Abbas was meeting with Ismail Haniya, the overall head of Hamas, who, of course, doesn't live in the Gaza Strip, like most of the senior leadership, they live elsewhere. And that was held in Cairo. And many thought that these demonstrations were sparked by that meeting. And they were trying to say, we don't want Hamas at all, really, uh, ruling over us. We would like to see the Palestinian Authority that was thrown out in a violent conflict in 2007, thrown out of the Gaza Strip. We'd like to see them return and take over because, of course, they are a more moderate force, a less Islamic extremist force and not under the thumb of Iran so much. So that's the situation, and uh, we expect more demonstrations. But, Rick, I have to say that they were planning another uh, day of demonstrations on August 5th, 
And uh, those were very, very small because Hamas sent all of its police forces, all of its security forces out. They were grabbing people's cell phones who were taking pictures of the demonstrations. There was uh, fighting going on in several locations. So they are obviously cracking down against uh, these protests. And we'll have to see if they fizzle out now or if they continue to uh, take place. It would be uh, quite something because Hamas is a very strong force and really rules the Gaza Strip with an iron fist. Let me bring up another uh, subject, U.S.-Israeli relations. President Biden's initiative for uh, helping to normalize peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. This is having political ramifications in Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Rick. The Times of Israel ran a news story this week quoting two senior Democratic senators that wanted to remain anonymous, questioning why the Biden administration is promoting a peace accord between Israel and Saudi Arabia at this time under what they called the most right-wing extremist government in Israel's history. Well, I've pointed out on this program that only one of the four parties in Netanyahu's coalition is a, a right-wing uh, extremist party. Party, if you will. The other three, the two other religious parties, are mostly uninvolved in those sorts of political matters. They're interested in their own communities. They're interested in their own uh, school systems. And Shas, one of the four, is really quite a liberal party. They're always advocating for the poor of Israel. Many of their voters are not Orthodox. They're just Sephardic Jews that uh, like the traditional values of the party, that sort of thing. And the Likud is a center-right party. It's not an extremist party. But anyway, these two senators said, why are you doing that? Uh, this isn't the right time. And also, Israel has applied to become a part of a waiver program, a visa waiver program, Rick, that allows citizens of that country Britain, for instance, France, Germany, many others, to get into the United States without uh, tourists, without applying for a visa first. Israel is on the list to be accepted. They've been trying to get this status for some years. And these senators are saying, why now? You know, don't support Netanyahu indirectly. And it comes, uh, as we've had other stories, a Michigan uh, state senator, Democratic state senator, Sylvia Santana, she accepted a trip, a free trip to Israel, sponsored by a pro-Israel Michigan organization. She's from the Dearborn area. And that was widely condemned by the Arab American community there. And about half the people of that region are of uh, Arab descent, and many of them of, uh, are still practicing Muslims. So it's always known as sort of an anti-Israel region. But uh, we're seeing some blowback from the Democratic Party against the Netanyahu government and against Biden having basically anything to do with it. But meanwhile, the White House announced again this week or reaffirmed that uh, Biden will meet with Netanyahu somewhere in the United States, not apparently at the White House. The speculation, again, is that it will be at the U.N. in New York at the end of September when both leaders will be there. So we'll see what comes of that. Well, we just have a minute left for this final question, and I wanted to talk to you. Iran's existential threat to Israel might have grown even more now with the fact that they are developing supersonic missiles. Well, so they say, Rick, they made an announcement during the week, the Tehran regime, that they are producing now supersonic cruise missiles. Now, that's the key point there, cruise missiles. We already know that they've had supersonic missiles. Those are missiles that are shot up into the upper atmosphere and then fall back down to Earth. 
Uh, we've known they've had those for some years, and Israel is defense has the arrow system mainly to defend against those sorts of uh, systems. But a cruise missile is much lower flying. It doesn't go up into the upper atmosphere. Uh, it's a straight line sort of a thing. And if those can go at supersonic, which is Mach 1 speed, then that produces a much graver threat to Israel. Also, they can be fired from anywhere, from ships, from submarines, from anywhere. So that produces a new threat to Israel. Their Iron Dome system wouldn't be adequate enough to take out these fast-moving, much faster-moving than the rockets that are fired from Gaza or Lebanon. Uh, they have the David Sling system, which might be able to do some of that. But the arrow is designed to look up and take out these ballistic missiles from above. So if indeed they're developing these cruise missiles that are supersonic, it is a grave new threat to Israel and one they'll have to be guarding against. They certainly will. Well, David, thank you so much for keeping us informed on this variety of stories that we had for you today from the Middle East and from Israel. We appreciate all that you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Blessed to do it, Rick. God bless. we got to take a break, and when we come back, an interview with Dr. Richard Smith on this second anniversary on the home going of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung Jr. here, along with my brother Rick. We've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is, as we said at the outset of the program, that we are trying to not necessarily memorialize, but we're celebrating the anniversary of our father's home going, the passion that he had for teaching Bible prophecy, the reason why we are carrying on this program. So today on the program, we're looking and talking to his friends that uh, he, along with him, they had a passion also for teaching Bible prophecy. And one of Dad's great friends is Dr. Richard Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt, welcome to the program today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being able to express my love for your dad today. Dr. Schmidt, I know that one of the things that Dad did, he tried to instill the importance of studying Bible prophecy. In your words, why is it important that we continue to study Bible prophecy? Well, it's absolutely essential. When you just look at the Word of God, you find out that there's one-third of the Bible is prophecy. One-third. Dr. John Walvert had put out a book called Every Prophecy of the Bible, 1,000 different prophecies in the Bible. Uh, your dad would quote that on occasion, 500 of those 
prophecies have come to pass exactly as stating, meaning there's 500 more prophecies that have not been fulfilled. It's absolutely essential for people in the church age to understanding not only the past and the present, but what is going to happen in the prophetic future. When we uh, look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, uh, which me and you have talked about multiple times, it talks about what is going to be happening in these last days as we're preparing for the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ is going to return. The Bible is just absolutely filled with things that are taking place, prophecy that uh, is not been fulfilled yet, but God has been, and I love what your dad said, and you say it now, God has been setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So it's uh, we know that there's going to be perilous times. Why? Because the prophetic word tells us those things, uh, things that are so important and that is so discounted today, things such as uh, the Jewish people being brought back to mm. Israel, the stage being set for the third temple to be built in Israel, things that are taking place around the world with uh, the Middle East, with Russia, with China, all part of God's prophetic word from multiple different passages. So not to study God's word is to literally miss out everything that God is doing in this present time that is setting the stage for not only the prophetic word to be fulfilled, but showing how close we are to when Jesus Christ is coming back to take us, the body of Christ, his church, home to be with him. So studying Bible prophecy is essential for every single Christian. You know what? I just heard a sermon of yours about the state of the church uh, or the state of Bible teaching in today's church. Well, Dr. DeYoung, this is one of the heartaches that I think your dad, as well as you and I, are seeing around the country and around the world. We're getting away from the, the church as a whole, is getting away from teaching prophecy. They're going into what's now known as covenant theology, which basically says there is no prophetic truth, if you will. Everything is allegorized and spiritualized. Things such as the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, all these things in about, as uh, Dr. Thomas Isis said, uh, based on his research, about 60% of all fundamental Bible-believing churches are now denying the mm. literal interpretation of the Bible. Wow. That's that's just an absolute disaster that's happening in our churches today. What else does that breed? It breeds a, a replacement theology stating the church has replaced Israel, that Israel is no longer uh, a mainstay, if you will, that God has dismissed Israel. Well, that replacement theology, also known as supersessionist theology, kingdom now theology, all of these things are destroying the literal interpretation, the fancy word, the uh, uh, hermeneutic, if you will, the literal interpretation of the Bible in context, in historical and grammatical context, has is being destroyed. So unfortunately, uh, we're becoming, those of us who believe in a literal interpretation of the scriptures, even among Bible-believing churches, is becoming uh, anemic. It, it's just horrible what's taking place. And this is one of the main reasons why today 
uh, people like you, those ministries that hold to a biblical hermeneutic, a biblical interpretation, literal interpretation of the Bible, we've got to keep this going. We've got to press harder than we've ever pressed before, as unfortunately the church is taking a turn towards these allegorical doctrinal stands. I know that my father had an impact on you. Uh, you've told me that before, but what did he m- mean to you and, and your desire to teach God's Word? Well, your dad was absolutely instrumental in mentoring me, in teaching me. Your dad literally had sat down with me one of the first times I met him, and he expressed the importance of studying Bible prophecy and getting it right. Boy, I encourage folks to do this. Your dad put together many different CDs, DVD series, books that he'd done, I own, I think, every single uh, (laughs) series that your dad did and the DVDs. I play them in my car over and over and over again to drill these things in my head. Your dad was just absolutely phenomenal when it came to quoting Scripture, quoting the passages, getting the address right, if you will, from the Word of God. Mm. And that just molded my preaching uh, especially when it comes to uh, things that I do at prophecy conferences and in other venues. All of those things are because of your dad. And as you brought up, I made that promise at his funeral to God as well as in honor of your mm-hmm. dad to make sure that we don't give up, that we don't stop preaching the prophetic word, which is absolutely essential during these last days. It sure is, and I sure appreciate your your words, your kind thoughts, and that encouragement as a son, and I'm sure those that listen to our program who knew Dad feel the same way about his teachings. He had a special way of teaching. Well, as a teacher, as a student of the Word, as a prophecy teacher with a biblical, a prophetic biblical worldview, I'm not asking you to, to pick a date, Dr. Schmidt, but... How close do you think we are to the rapture of the church? Well, your your dad was <laughs> nobody uh, looked forward to Jesus Christ coming more than your dad. He was I, I knew he was absolutely convinced. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen, but he was convinced that Jesus would return mm-hmm. during his lifetime. Uh, I think at Titus chapter two verse thirteen it says, "Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ." who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. I believe the Apostle Paul thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. That was 2,000 years ago. He was looking for the (laughs) imminent return of Jesus Christ. Your dad was looking for the imminent return. Me and you are looking for the imminent return. And that's the attitude I believe God wants us to have. Jesus could come back at any moment, at any time. And we've got to be ready for his appearing and being about, if you will, our Father's business until that day comes. Very well said. Thank you, Dr. Schmidt. Sure, appreciate you. And as you have exhorted us to keep edifying, educating the body of Christ and using that, that helps us to evangelize, to understand the urgency of the hour. Thank you, Dr. Schmidt. We've got some other things to talk about in the future, how we feel the United States are going and the direction it's going. I want to get to you on that in the future, but we'll save that for a later program. Thank you, Dr. Schmidt. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, and God bless. 
Dr. Richard Schmidt, a great friend of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and uh, continues to be a great friend of ours here, and I always affectionately call him America's pastor, at least he's our pastor. Well, today on the program, which dovetails very nicely with Dr. Richard Schmidt and what he said, Bill Federer, a brand new Prophecy Today partner, right, Rick? That's right, Jimmy. I have with us today a brand new guest to the Prophecy Today radio program. Bill Federer joins us. He's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of Amerisearch, a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Bill also has a program called the American Minute, which features on many radio stations across the country. Bill, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Well, Bill, since I've got you on this program for the first time, I know you have a ministry, you you do a lot of speaking, you have a a big social media presence. If you could, could you let us know just a little bit what your ministry is all about and and tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I have a line, history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. And so if you put some history together with some prophetic, you get an idea of where the world's headed. I wrote my first book. It came off the press in 1994 called America's God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations, and it sold uh, half a million copies. So that opened the door for me to write full-time. I've written about 30 books. I do a TV show called Faith in History on the TCT Network, DirecTV, and speak all across the country. But one of the things that I found is that a quote from Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, he said, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. So have you ever met an individual who has lost their memory? They forgot who they are. Maybe they have Alzheimer's. It's sad. We sort of have national Alzheimer's. We've lost our, our national corporate memory. Here we are, the freest nation that planet Earth has ever seen. And we forgot who we are and we forgot how we got here. And so when we tell these history stories, it's sort of like giving an Alzheimer patient their memory back. And uh, so I like zooming out, and that's where I go through the 6,000-year big picture of recorded human history, and the most common form of government is kings, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger, because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. Instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a phalanx spear the Greeks had or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or a gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon improves, but it's that same fall of nature of Cain killing Abel. And with technological advancements, kings can track more people. Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called the census. That was new technology back then. If he could have had 5G and cell phones and cameras, he would have been tempted to track people that way. And so these kingdoms go on until finally the king of England had the biggest. The sun never set on the British Empire. He was a globalist. He was a one-world government guy. And America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. So it's a polarity change in the flow of power. Set a top-down rule by kings and bottom-up rule by we, the people. Where did our founders get this idea? From the New England pastors who got the idea from the Bible. What part of the Bible, the first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. So you had a 400-year period where there's millions of people and no king, and it worked because every single citizen was taught the law, and they were personally accountable to God to follow the law. So you have an opportunity to steal, nobody's around, and then you think, God's watching me, he wants me to be fair, he's going to hold me accountable, maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. 
If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no king, with no police. And so it worked for 400 years in Israel until the priests stopped teaching the law. Every man did what was right of their own eyes, turns into chaos, and they all go to Samuel the prophet. And they say, we want to be like the other countries. We want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. So God's original plan for ancient Israel was to not have a king. Everybody be taught the law and personally accountable to God. And so the New England pastors look back to that, and that's how they modeled America. So in a sense, King Saul is the divider between England and America. You say, King Saul? Yeah, the kings of England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the anointed King Saul and on part of the Bible. The Calvinist Puritans that founded New England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the pre-King Saul period, this 400-year Hebrew Republic, millions of people and no king. And so, but you don't appreciate ancient Israel. You don't appreciate the colonial America until you zoom out and look at all the world's history and see the most common form of government's kings. That's some of the stuff I talk about in a book called Who is the King in America? Very interesting. And I love the way you are mixing in history plus biblical principles as well. And also what you said there, history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. And we are looking right now, our program looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy because we believe things taking place now are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And it's very much a similar concept as we are looking at what's going on. We see what could happen next. And I think we could go on all day talking about all kinds of different things, but we'll have to have you on the program again. But what I'd like to talk about is a book, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And then a subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crisis to Consolidate Control. And I think that is a very interesting topic in the light of what is going on in the world. I'm going to, it's many chapters in the book, lots of things that you bring up relating to history, relating to biblical principles. Uh, We're not going to be able to get to them all. I just want to get to some highlights of them. But if you could, could you tell me what you were thinking of when you put this book together? Right. So the most common form of government's kings, democracies, and republics are attempts for the people to rule themselves without a king. But what if the king wants the power back? Does he just ask for it? Well, people aren't in a hurry to give up the power. So there's two ways the king can take the power back. Fear. When people get afraid, they will panic and trade their freedom for security. And the second is free stuff. The king is giving out free stuff until you get dependent. And then you want some more, you're going to incrementally give up your freedom. So fear and free stuff are the two methods at which people will give up their freedom to a king. Well, giving things away for free is certainly one way to entice or to trap people. Another strategy that I've heard you talk about is this idea of preaching tolerance. Tolerance to the extent that it seems to get rid of all standards. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So it's this idea of democracy. Plato said the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other. It's wonderful. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off till finally they're tolerating lawlessness and chaos and random violence and smashing windows and looting and setting things on fire. And then people panic and say, we, we need somebody to come in with enough power to restore order. And that's when the government says, we've been waiting for you to ask. We're going to restore order, but we're going to take away your guns, take away your freedom of speech, because you might say something that sets the other person off, and we're going to take away your privacy. We're going to track everybody. So lawlessness is the step right before dictatorship. 
And so if somebody wants to be a dictator, they want to first create lawlessness. So they want to let criminals out of jail. They want to bring in illegal immigrants into the cities. They want to have violence take place. Why? Because then everybody will say, government, come in and restore order. And they do the same thing with, with health care scares. They, and everybody panics, so government come in. They, they want to create a food shortage. You know, one of the things I point out, this tendency, how you have kings. Kings are nothing more than glorified gang leaders. And gang is the default setting for human government. If you got rid of all police and laws tomorrow, it would pretty soon devolve into gangs. And, uh, and a king is nothing more than a glorified gang leader. And it's a hierarchical system. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason, or you're a slave. And, and so that's the norm. And what's rare is people ruling themselves without a king. And it only works if the people have self-control and morals. And what motivates you to follow these morals is you're accountable to God. So it's not libertarian. Libertarianism is, let's get rid of all the laws. It's like, well, all you're going to do is have chaos. And then after the chaos is everybody's going to cry out and the government's going to come in and, and take away your freedom. So if you're going to get rid of the external laws, you have to counterbalance with the people having more internal laws. And that's what the founding fathers, when John Adams wrote the Constitution for Massachusetts in 1780, he put in there that there should be state paid for Protestant teachers of piety and religion. That was the beginning of the public school system. Protestant teachers of piety and religion. Why? Because he knew if we were not going to be a country ruled by a king through fear, then we're going to be a people that rules themselves. We need to have morals. We need to have virtue. And what motivates people to follow these morals and virtue is your, account your accountability to God. Very interesting that you talk about the Founding Fathers, and in fact, we did a documentary, my late father and uh, my brother and myself, we put together this program called Is the USA in Bible Prophecy? And we look at where the USA might fall into Bible prophecy. But before that, the first half of that documentary, we talked about the Founding Fathers and the founding of the uh, the United States and how the United States has been blessed because of the, the Founding Fathers and some of the principles. Of course, they weren't necessarily perfect, but the principles that they put into place helped us found this great country. Of course, we also believe that uh, Israel was put on the earth to play a role in bringing the Jewish people back into the land of Israel to fulfill Bible prophecy, and America has had a role to play there as well. But one of the tactics that, and we've talked about it, and there's so many things in your book that I can't get to it all, so we're just uh, hitting on highlights here, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about, it's called deconstructionism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and so a car goes from drive, neutral, to reverse. So deconstruction is you take a country from its Judeo-Christian past into a secular neutral before you go into a Sharia, Islamic, LGBT, trans, or whatever, and it's a sales technique. So if I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is tell you negative things about the toothpaste you're currently using. You're still brushing with that stuff. Haven't you read it? It'll eat the enamel off your teeth. Ooh, you're repulsed by it. Now I have you in a neutral. You're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there? And then I can give you my pitch for this brand new tartar control breath pressure stuff. So that's what they do. They go into the classrooms and they tell the kids negative things about the founding fathers. They took land from Indians. They sold people into slavery. They were chauvinists. These students are like, ooh, they're bad. Now you have the kids in a neutral. They're open-minded. What are all the belief systems out there? Then you give them your pitch for LGBT or, or, or trans or Sharia or, or whatever. Europe went through this. It went from a Judeo-Christian Europe with a thousand years of Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, and Jewish neighborhoods 
to a secular Europe with the French Revolution. Free sex, anything goes. They forgot their history. And now it's turning into Islamic Sharia socialist Europe, right? And so this drive neutral reverse, it's, it's a process. You know, I was going to mention Joseph in Egypt was a godly man. He concentrates power into the hands of the Pharaoh. And what did that particular Pharaoh do with the power? He fed the children of Israel, gave them the best land of Goshen, gave them jobs, taking care of his cattle. But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he used all that concentrated power to oppress the children of Israel, make them slaves and throw their sons in the Nile River. And so you look at America's founders, they did good, like Joseph. They they put together a federal government, and what were they going to do with it? I mean, they let freedom spread. They, you know, uh, freed the slaves. They, even World War One and Two, defend, defeated these totalitarian governments. It was good. But then there was a new pharaoh. There was new leadership. There was new people in office that didn't know where our country's founders were. And they're using all this concentrated power to do what? Spread abortion around the world, spread pornography, spread the trans agenda, Hollywood, right? And, uh, and so this, this flip, uh, seems to have taken place. And, uh, now we're in the, in the role of trying to bring America back to its Christian founding. And I'm very similar to the book of, uh, Kings where you have Josiah who inherits this Judah kingdom where his granddad Manasseh was trashing the temple and and God told the prophets, told Manasseh, it's over, we're, you're done. But then this young Josiah repents and God puts off the judgment for the 31-year reign of Josiah. So I'm praying for a Josiah generation that, that if we repent and turn to the Lord, he can let a, a period of, of freedom spread still. But anyway, it's just a fascinating topic, and I cover a lot of this stuff in the book called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. Well, I know that I'm sure that our listeners are hearing some of this stuff and having light bulb moments. Aha, they can see it because this is something that we are seeing these strategies at work. One final strategy that I wanted you to talk about near and dear to my heart because I have three young children. This strategy is that they do seem to be targeting the children, don't they? Yeah, and, and that's where I go through that their tactic is to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. That if you're really Christian, you will be silent and sit back and do nothing while we teach your kids the trans agenda. I have a question. Would Jesus teach the trans agenda? That you can be 72 different genders and this and that? Well, no, it's really clear. Jesus said in the beginning, God made them male and female. And the man shall leave the father, mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one. And so they're trying to say, look, if you're really Christian, you will let us teach something to the kids that Jesus would never teach to the kids. So if you're really Christian, you won't act like Christ. Yet Jesus says, if you allow one of these little ones that believes in me to stumble, better that a millstone be put around your neck mm. and you'd be thrown in the depths of the sea. So all these people that think they're being spiritual by not getting involved, by their silence, they're giving consent to sin. They're inviting the judgment of God on their heads. Well, Bill, all of this is very concerning stuff. And I guess we have presented the problem, and, and I know that all of us have realized it. But what does Scripture say that we should do about this? How do we fight back? Well, the internal is repentance. So all liberty is individual. All repentance is individual. It's not them out there repenting. It's me. It's each one of us repenting. Returning to the first love, returning to the first works, reading the Bible, praying, spending time with the Lord, and doing something. Because everything that's alive takes in and gives out. You don't just hear a sermon. 
you hear a sermon and put yourself in a position where there's a need, and then the Holy Spirit uses you to meet the need. The, the, one of the names for Holy Spirit is paraclete, which means helper, which means you don't just pray and put your feet up on the couch and wait for God to do something. You pray, and then you do everything you can, and the Holy Spirit helps you at, to try to turn things around. And so the first step is local, local, local. I ran for Congress three times, and I could tell you all the stories, and most people say, check that off my list. I'll never do it. But if you say, forget the, the Congress, you drive by the public school every day. And if you know they're teaching something, they're different than what Jesus taught, that little kids can be fuzzies, they, they can identify as a cat. And, and there's more people in churches around that school than vote in the school board race. In other words, if you just pick some mama bear and get everybody to agree to get behind her, hmm. then you can you turn the school board overnight. So instead of saying, oh, we're not going to get involved, it's not going to get involved, look, a scriptural case can be made that Jesus cares about the children, and he cares about what's being taught to the children. And so let's, let's leave all the other races alone. Just talk about the school board race. Just talk about what these little kids are being taught. I think a scriptural case can be made that Jesus cares about what's being taught to little children. And if you're driving by that every day and you're silent and you're letting it go on, you're giving consent to that. And if you give consent to sin, you're going to be judged for the sin. And if, but all we have to do locally is just pick some mama bear in the church, pick some man that cares about what his kids are being taught, and get all the local churches to say, we don't agree doctrinally on everything, but we're not happy with what's being taught to the kids. Let's all agree to get behind this one person. And we can start turning it around overnight locally. Well, Bill, excellent advice. A call to action, a call to repent, and a call to get involved. I think that is great. Well, if we want to find out more, and we'd love to have you back on the program here in the future, but if somebody wants to find out more about you, more about your ministry, and some of these resources that you put together, how could they do that? Well, thank you. My website is AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. Bill Federer, thank you so much for being on the program. We look forward to having you back again soon. Well, thank you. Look forward to it myself. We got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy Dio, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, one of the things that we're doing is remembering the home going of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung two years ago this week, and uh, it's just something we as sons will do, and we'll keep continuing to do that because he instilled in us a passion for studying God's Word and Bible prophecy, which is a part of God's Word. And Dr. Richard Schmidt, Rick, he uh, laid out for us the thought and the encouragement to buy some books and DVDs and audio series. How can people get those series? Well, you know, Jimmy, I think it would be a great idea to let people know that we can offer the books this week. You can go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Go to our bookstore. Everything that's on the bookstore, Jimmy, let's see if we can encourage our listeners to go to it, to uh, look at these study helps that Dad put together to help you study Bible prophecy. For the next week, Jimmy, we're going to have everything half off. If you go to our website, you'll see all of our materials will be half off. We hope that encourages you to get into the Word, to study Scripture, to study Bible prophecy, that's what Dad's legacy is all about, and that's what we hope that our listeners will do. Well, I sure appreciate that, Rick, and I'm sure those that are first-time listeners that have never been to our website, we hope that you go there to get uh, some materials to help you in your study of Bible prophecy. One of the series is 
God's plan through the ages. This has been the study of the prophetic book of Daniel, which describes the times of the Gentiles. In our last study, we had come to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, or also known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we see described the seven-year period of time known as the tribulation, which takes place in the end times. Daniel 9, 27 tells us of two major components in the tribulation period known as the tyrant and the treaty. The tyrant is a satanically energized antichrist. In that seven years, there will also be a treaty, a treaty that supposedly brings peace. This treaty will actually bring a temporary, short-lived pseudo-peace. Today, we begin our study in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Dr. DeYoung will begin by asking a question and then giving the answer. Please go with us to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. The tyrant. Is the tyrant alive? I can go much deeper in the study of the Antichrist, but I believe he's alive. I told you chapter 7 verse 8 says he comes out of the ten horns. He controls three and he takes charge. Chapter 17 of the book of Revelation says, one hour with the beast. And that word beast used 42 times in Revelation is referring to the Antichrist. And one hour with the beast, these 10 horns receive their power. One hour with the beast, he comes out. Is the Antichrist alive? And I do believe there is a potential world leader out there that fits every single detail that the Antichrist will be involved in. I believe he's on the earth. But what does the Antichrist do? Look at Daniel 9, 27. And he shall confirm a covenant. I want you to know something, my dear friends. There's three covenants on our world scene today already in place. Camp David Accords, 1979, Israel and Egypt. That's on the verge of being destroyed by the Muslim Brotherhood when they come to power in Egypt. The second one, the Oslo Accord, signed September the 13th, 1993. Judy and I were in the government press office. We're both journalists in Israel. We watched on a live screen television feed from the White House, Yitzhak Rabin, Bill Clinton, and Yasser Arafat signed the Camp David Accords, excuse me, the Oslo Accords, a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians. The next year, 1994, October the 25th, Judy and I drove down to Elat, we spent the night there, came out to the Arava, where they had 10,000 people to watch. 1,000 of them were journalists. They recorded what happened when Yitzhak Rabin, Prime Minister of Israel, King Hussein of Jordan, and Bill Clinton came together and to sign this, the peace treaty between Israel and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, 26 October, 1994. I was there when they signed it. All of these peace treaties, Camp David Accord, Oslo Accord, this peace treaty, on the table, not working, never been normalized, waiting for somebody to come and take this peace. I can confirm this. Oh, by the way, that's what the text says. It never says they're going to sign a peace treaty. It says, I will confirm it. Kabar is the word in Hebrew, confirm, strengthen, make stronger. Here's the peace treaty of Daniel 9.27. Ready to be confirmed. And when they confirm it, the clock starts ticking on the seven years. 
One more thing. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Here is the fourth of these unbelievable prophecies. Folks, I really need about an hour for this one, but we can't take it. we just got a couple of minutes. Chapter 11 is one of the most detailed prophetic passages in all of Scripture. 57 years before King Ahasuerus comes on the scene, verse 2 of Daniel 11, Daniel tells all about him. He'd be the fourth Persian king, far richer than all the rest, and he is the one that fulfilled the prophecy Daniel gave 57 years before he came on the scene. In verses 3 and 4, it talks about a mighty king who comes to power. That could be any of them, but then he dies and his kingdom is divided into four parts. We know that's Alexander the Great. 200 years before Alexander the Great comes on the scene, Daniel writes about him. When you come to chapter 11, verses 5 to 20, you're reading about Antiochus the Great. When this kingdom of Alexander the Great was divided into four parts, north, south, east, and west, the north was a powerful entity, the south was a powerful entity, east and west were nebulous entities. These kingdoms come to power. The Bible talks about it, Daniel relates it. The one in the north, the king of the north, his name Antiochus the Great, 300 years before he comes on the scene, Daniel details about him, says he's even going to marry the daughter of the king of the south, and it's right in the text. And that's what he did. 300 years before he comes on the scene, Daniel writes about him. By the way, the north, south, east, and west, that gives us direction. Who was the king of the north and where did he live? Modern-day Syria, Antiochus the Great. King of the south, where did he live? Modern-day Egypt. And so when you see king of the north, you're talking about Syria. You can see the south, king of the south, modern-day Egypt. When you come now to the 21st verse, we see a... A prophecy about Antiochus the Great. You remember what happened just before Christmas, a time called Hanukkah? That was to celebrate the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes. 360 years before he came on the scene, desecrated the temple. It talked about a group of men rising up. The Maccabees, Matthias Maccabees, Judas Maccabees, all the Maccabee brothers rise up. They throw Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple. He had desecrated it. Three years to the day after he desecrated it, they reconsecrated it, found a flask of virgin olive oil, lit the menorah, the seven-branch candelabra. Instead of being lighted for one day, which is all the fuel they had, it stayed lighted for eight days. Thus Hanukkah. Hanukkah means the Feast of Dedication. Jesus Christ celebrated Hanukkah, John chapter 10. It's interesting to me, in John 8, 9, and 11, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And it has effect with the menorah there in the temple. He's absolute perfect. When he gets to verse 36, he's talking about the Antichrist who comes on the scene. Notice what it says here. Look at verse 40. Uh, Verses 36, 37, 38, and 39 describe the Antichrist. That's another time. Verse 40. And at the time of the end, now look up here just a moment, please. In this definition of the time of the end, it's happening after the rapture of the church leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. During the seven-year period of time, that's what it's talking about. Now look here. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Three personalities there. King of the north, that's modern-day Syria. King of the south, that's modern-day Egypt. Him. Well, that's the Antichrist. Verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will. One of 27 names for the Antichrist. So we have the personalities. He, his, and him, Antichrist. King of the north, Syria. King of the south, Egypt. 
When did they push at the Antichrist? When did these two Arab nations push at the Antichrist? After he has confirmed the peace treaty. He made a commitment to Israel. I'm your Messiah. I will take care of you. Where does the Antichrist go? He leaves there and goes over to Rome, Italy. Chapter 17 of Revelation. What's he doing over there? He's building a false church. What is he here? There's happening something in the Middle East. He's got to get back there. Look at verse 41. And he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand. Even Edom, Moab, and the chief children of Ammon. You know what that is? Biblically, that's modern-day Jordan. Why doesn't the Antichrist destroy Jordan? Petra is located in Jordan. That's the special place prepared by God, Isaiah 63, to protect the Jewish people. So God doesn't allow him to touch Jordan. So he starts in Syria, wipes out Syria, comes through Jordan, doesn't touch it. Look here in verse 42. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of the gold and over the silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans. I'll stop right there. You've been paying attention. I said when the Antichrist comes on the scene, at the beginning of the seven years, to start the clock ticking, he confirms a peace treaty as I'm speaking in Amman, Jordan. They're working on peace in the Middle East. And a potential leader to be Antichrist is ahead of it. But why are they concerned? Oh, Syria, Egypt, and Libya are causing problems. Are Syria, Egypt, and Libya on the radar screen? Syria. Bashar Assad already killed 8,000 of his people trying to stay in power. The Muslim Brotherhood is trying to overthrow him as they overthrew Hosni Mubarak after 32 years. Muslim Brotherhood, a radical Islamic group. They fathered Yasser Arafat and Sheikh Yassin who established Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And Mr. or Dr. Al-Sawari, who's the number one man now in Al-Qaeda. That's products of the Muslim Brotherhood. And by the way, in Libya, after shooting Muammar Gaddafi at point-blank range in the head, they took charge there. You say, you think Mubarak was good? You think Bashar Assad is good? You think Colonel Gaddafi's good? No, they weren't good. But they weren't radical, ready to come against Israel. But now the element. Who are the first three? Syria, Egypt, Libya. That's the text. I didn't make that up. In the times of the Gentiles, near the time when the Antichrist appears and that peace treaty is confirmed, the nations are getting ready to attack Israel. That's the time in which we're living. Only one thing must happen before all these prophecies are fulfilled. One thing. Pow! And we're out of here to see Jesus. I did that for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to show you how quickly the rapture can happen. Number two reason I did it, to show you that some of you are going to be surprised. In fact, 93% of you tried to get a head start on the rapture. I saw you. 
You lift it off. Relax, we all go at the same time. This is serious, though. Daniel lays out the times of the Gentiles, gives us the Antichrist, the seven-year tribulation period, and the first three nations that attack Israel. That's all happening in our time. Look up. Our redemption draweth nigh. The book of Daniel does introduce to each of us the times of the Gentiles, which continues until the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Daniel 11, he takes us through 2,500 years of history foretold and then fulfilled. How the alignment of the nations, that would be Islamic nations, will form a coalition to attack and then try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. The prophet Daniel discloses the first three nations in this coalition to attack Israel. They are Syria, Egypt, and Libya. This is all part of the scenario of God's plan throughout the ages. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Next week, we will continue to look at God's plan through the ages as foretold in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Please join us then. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States shut down its embassy in Haiti on Tuesday with gunfire close by. Gang violence has Port-au-Prince in a state of anarchy. Gangs also kidnapped an American nurse and her daughter two weeks ago. Thankfully, both were recently released. With news like this, Rosalind DeHartit for Haiti with Love reminds us that Haiti is not all bad. The violence is limited to the South. For Haiti with Love runs a burn clinic in the North where there's no gang violence, but the ripple effects still have impact. They need your support to keep ministering in the name of Christ. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. And persecution can lead to purification in Christian teaching. An Algerian Christian leader, Youssef, who partners with Operation Mobilization, remembers when leaders taught the church was only a building. Then the government started closing Protestant churches. Believers learned they were the church, and God is with them wherever they gather. Pray for Youssef and his wife training Christian leaders in Algeria. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Luke Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining for the last hour and a half current events in the light of God's prophetic word. 
Not only have we been doing that, we've been talking about why we teach Bible prophecy, the passion that we have, where we learned it from. (laughs) Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, uh, each one of the men talked about that. And then the state of uh, our Bible teaching today in the churches and how close that we are to the rapture. But one thing I want to close out with, Rick, and uh, this happened the last week that Dad was alive. I mean, you know, there's so many stories about COVID. Again, ours is just one of many. But we happen to be able to tell our story. And I like this last week. Mom shared this with me way back after uh, the, the event that final week. As Dad read, not only did he write the devotions, he put them together. We went through God's Word. You can go to our website, take a look at those. But this is the one that he shared with Mom that week that he was in the hospital. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And here's the the devotion. Paul is writing a word of encouragement to those in Corinth. And Dad used to read these to Mom. So this is very important about what the time of death will bring to each of us. Most of us look at death as something to be dreaded, something to be avoided at all cost. As I remind myself, as well as reminding you also, those who are reading this devotional, that death is not the end all. It is actually the beginning, the beginning of eternity future. The apostle brings to our attention that in our present tabernacle, our present body, there is groaning. Let me stop right here. Every day as I become aware of another ache or pain that I never have experienced before, I usually spend several minutes or sometimes even several hours worrying about what the discomfort may be and what it could be become. Paul is telling us that we will one day put on a new tabernacle, a new wonderful heavenly body. Paul talks about confidence and he reminds us of where the confidence comes from. The Holy Spirit has sealed each of us into the body of Christ. It is in the earnest of the Spirit that gives us the confidence of where we are and what we will be one day. As we are alive on this earth, we are absent from the Lord, and we know that by faith, not by sight. Paul then speaks of another confidence, the confidence that we have when we die on this earth, we go directly into his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's verse 8. At death, all born-again Christians are transported by angels, Luke 16, 22, into the heavenlies and into his presence. Now reread our key verse. Until that victorious time of death, when we go into his presence, Paul says he would be ambitious, and so should we be the same. Paul wanted to live a life, to do the work the Lord so that when he saw him, he would be accepted of him. That should be the same for us. When we see him, we might be accepted of him. The very next verse, verse 10, speaks of us then standing at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says that he wants to be well accepted of Christ at that time. This is a godly ambition because at the judgment seat of Christ, we are given crowns for those works we have done for the Lord in his power for his glory. Then we take these crowns and we lay them at the feet as he sits upon the throne. Revelation 4.10 In thanksgiving for all that he has done for us, we must join Paul in this godly ambition so that we can give him the glory. Rick, I remember mom telling the story that when dad read that, he said, Judy, I think that it's time that this is God 
given me a clarity of thought that it might be my time of being carried to the heavenly by the angels. Well, Jimmy, as you read that, it's obviously very emotional mm. for us, and, and I'm sure many of the people listening, because I know so many were so affected by Dad and close. Two things that stood out to me. Uh, the first one is the hope that we have, and we, he talks about uh, the new tabernacle, the heavenly body, mm-hmm. and we think about that, and <laughs> we certainly do know, I mean, he was 80 when he passed away, and there were a lot of new pains and a <laughs> lot of new things that were really getting to Dad, and, uh, you know, he was he was always concerned about each one, uh, but now he has no longer those concerns, and that's a hope that all of us as believers have. But the second, uh, the second thing that stands out is uh, a life well lived. I mean, if you look at that and you talk about having an ambition to be well accepted of Christ, and you look at he put these devotionals together. He read them every day. Uh, over four hundred devotionals uh, that go starting from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and we kind of can continue to loop them on, and Dad would add some as he was writing, but right now we have over 400 of them. This is his testimony. This is his legacy. He was able to read that uh, as he passed away. So I just, uh, Dad was certainly, for anybody that knows him, he was certainly authentic. And he authentically studied. He he lived the life to share uh, the gospel as um, and to and to teach uh, from the Bible, and it's just a, this this devotional that we read during the week that he was in the hospital, uh, mm-hmm. the week that he passed away. But that was there to comfort us at that time. It's just an example, uh, an indicator of the life that he lived. Yes, it sure is. You know, he wasn't perfect. We're not saying that by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination. None of us are perfect, but. He did have that passion that he wanted to stand before the Lord to give his crowns, to give an account for the life that he lived of one that was dedicated, committed to teaching what he thought. And that's hopefully what I hope that you, uh, Rick and I hope that you take away from this program today. Men that learned from him, understood his passion, are carrying on that ministry. Other people, hopefully you will. You know, we all have the ability to teach and preach and understand and teach others about God's Word, all of God's Word. I want to finish with his prayer thought that he finishes up the devotion. Help me, Lord, to live a life that will receive reward at the judgment seat of Christ so I can show thanksgiving to you for all you have done for me as I cast my crowns at your feet. Folks, Understanding Bible prophecy, really, the future events, helps us to live a pure, productive life in light of his coming. Whether it be at death, when he'll be carrying us home before the rapture, or at the rapture of the church. Rick, thanks so much for joining with me today. And as we remember, we ask and we pray and we commit that God will help us to continue this ministry of edifying and educating the body of Christ. Thanks, Jimmy. This was certainly a special day to be a part of the program. Folks, let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.